Welcome to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we share the incredible lengths people go to to create their families, oftentimes despite the odds. Today's episode in honor of Pride is with Benjamin and Becca, a couple dedicated to sharing information about their fertility journeys, including Benjamin's experience as a trans man retrieving eggs in an effort to amplify this conversation. When Benjamin and Becca met doing advocacy work for Planned Parenthood in New England in 2018, they never imagined that months later they'd match on Tinder, get engaged to marry exactly three years to the day, and set out to have children together. But both have always known that they wanted to become parents. For any couple, this chapter of trying to have a baby can be exciting and overwhelming. But for Benjamin and Becca, it's heightened by the fact that Benjamin is a trans man who has had to come off testosterone and inject multiple hormones in order to retrieve eggs for the possibility of having a baby. Even though Benjamin and Becca are hardly the first couple in the LGBT community to undergo fertility treatments, it's still largely misunderstood by some healthcare providers and networks and insurance carriers. In fact, much of Becca's work now has been to explore the experience of trans people in healthcare settings, and in addition to personally navigating modern family building, both seek to create positive change for others in the LGBTQ plus community who face discrimination or disparities here. I think there is such a broad range of experiences of transmasculine and non-binary fertility stories that we just don't hear very often. And I think is really sad. You know, I can't tell you how many times in a week in a Facebook group or I get an Instagram message or I see a post that says, you know, trans men can't have kids or you can never take testosterone again or your eggs are faulty now. You know, just so many myths about the process. And when I educate people about it, they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. Oh my God, my doctor had no idea. As a member of the Transgender Educational Network and a longtime advocate for LGBTQ visibility and rights, it's perhaps no surprise that Benjamin has used his social media platform to shine a light on fertility from his point of view. And that's how we found each other. So Benjamin and Becca, and I'm going to call you Ben here because we're pretty casual here at Pregnantish, but welcome to the Pregnantish Podcast. I'm so happy to meet you both and have you here Thank you. We're really excited to be here. Happy to meet you and get to talk a little bit about our story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I was just thinking before you guys came on, navigating fertility treatments when you, you know, just start the hormones is a lot, but you had to have an added complexity. So we'll go into that. But before we go into all the fertility stuff, I always like to take it back to the beginning to each of you. I'd love to learn more about each of you and then you together. But maybe we'll start with you, Ben. Tell me about yourself. Yeah, my name is Ben. My pronouns are he and him. And the primary hat I wear is being a PhD student and researcher at the University of California, San Diego. I mostly look at education equity policy and creating affirming classrooms and curriculum, particularly for trans students, but for LGBTQ families kind of broadly. I'm a national facilitator with Welcoming Schools, so I get the amazing opportunity to travel the country doing training, seminars, and education for teachers and school districts on making their classrooms and their districts more inclusive and affirming for queer and trans students and their families. And I wear a few other hats with San Diego Pride, with an organization called Trans Youth Liberation, and I've actually helped to write some policy at the state level for California. 
Wow, what great advocacy work. And Becca, tell me about yourself. That's always a tough act to follow. (laughs) So I'm Becca, she, her pronouns. I currently work as a research coordinator at UCSD, and my work primarily focuses on HIV, stigma, and substance use among LGBTQ folks, looking specifically at trans and non-binary experiences in San Diego. I also work in research at Johns Hopkins, doing similar work for sexual minority women and work with youth group at Pride. And yeah, in our spare time, we foster a lot of kittens. I love that. You know, it's been really fun to follow you on social, but there's always so much under the hood. And I think you both coming to the table here on the Pregnant Podcast with your professional, your academic experience in advocacy, and then you personally being touched by this just gives so many layers to this important conversation that's so wildly misunderstood. So tell me about when you met, where were you? What happened? When did you know? And where were you, Ben, at that point in your journey as a trans man? Yeah. So I started my transition about a decade ago, and we met about five years ago living in Vermont. I had just finished grad school at the University of Vermont and was doing some advocacy work. I was working in student affairs full time and volunteering with Planned Parenthood, specifically in their Get Real Sex Ed campaign. So I was doing door knocking, I was doing social media and marketing, I was doing all sorts of advocacy work for them and sort of also working to educate their healthcare professionals on the experiences of trans folks, which shout out to Planned Parenthood, they've always been incredible about trans inclusive and affirming healthcare. Becca and I actually met kind of at the intersection of medical education and sex ed advocacy. Her background has always been in sort of sex ed, sexual health, reproductive justice. She's trained as a birth doula and an abortion doula. So we kind of crossed paths and made eyes at each other. But the stars aligned a few months later. We both swiped right. And I actually didn't recognize Becca right away. But I messaged her because, I mean, how could you not? (laughs) Yeah. She was like, do you remember we met at that thing? And I was like, oh, my God, yes. That makes this really easy because I don't have to come out to you. (laughs) So, you know, the rest is history. After that, we got engaged exactly three years later. And now here we are talking about making a baby. Wow. And when you guys met, did you start as friends then? But you kind of had eyes for each other. What, Becca, tell me from your perspective, because there's always like a he said, she said, or, you know, I just want to hear your side of this also. I mean, we were friendly, but I would say that, I mean, I knew very, very early on that, like, this was going to be my person. He was cat sitting for me like seven days after we met. So, yeah, there was really no prolonged friend phase there. So you have all these kittens you guys are parents of, but when did you know and what did you discuss when it came to having children together? Like, what did you think you would do? What did you imagine it to look like? And then we'll go into what it actually has looked like. But when did that come up? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, we both knew for most of our lives we wanted to be parents. For me, I didn't know what that would look like, what those possibilities were. And so I always kind of had this anxious attachment to the idea of being a parent. But I mean, I think Becca has known her whole life that she's wanted to be a mom. And we knew very quickly in our relationship together that this was something that was important to us and that we wanted to be parents together. I think something really challenging about being in a relationship where you can't DIY a baby is, right, the emotional, the financial, the physical toll that it takes But I also think something really beautiful to highlight is just 
the intense amount of intentionality and thoughtfulness and like critical analyzing of your life to make sure you're ready for this beautiful baby to come that it takes to take the first step on this journey and start to endure the physical, emotional, and financial burden of fertility treatments. You know, it's so interesting. Sorry to interrupt, Ben, but it's so interesting because when we lobby for reproductive coverage, frankly, on Capitol Hill, we go with Resolve every year and we lobby for this. That's one of our points is, and we're very inclusive and who should be included in that. But one of our points is you have people fighting so hard to make babies. This is who we support. This is who we should support in this country. I mean, it's only logical. Before I hear more about your process, your story here, I want to actually go back to one thing you said, Ben, about earlier when you grappled as when you were probably transitioning or what came up for you then with maybe being a dad or a parent in the future? Because I know our first podcast guest was Seth, trans male, who thought he had to give up on that dream when he decided to transition, which was very sad for him. And so I just love to also hear about your process there and what happened there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reason that Beck and I are really excited to be here is because there is so much misinformation about the experiences of trans men and fertility and what the possibilities of parenthood look like. You know, it is absolutely not true that trans men have to give up their dreams of parenthood, that they can't carry a baby themselves, that they can't, you know, retrieve their eggs like our plan is and have their partner carry or have a surrogate carry. You know, for me, it was a really dysphoria-inducing process. It was really hard, and I could not have gotten through it without Becca. But it would do a disservice to the community, which, of course, I can't speak on behalf of, but not to mention that, like, a lot of trans men find this to be a really beautiful and affirming journey. Like, there are so many beautiful stories of trans men and non-binary people who carry babies and love being pregnant and love being the parent that carries and give birth and chest feeds. So that was not my experience, but I think there is such a broad range of experiences of transmasculine and non-binary fertility stories that we just don't hear very often. And I think is really sad. You know, I can't tell you how many times in a week in a Facebook group or I get an Instagram message or I see a post that says, you know, trans men can't have kids or you can never take testosterone again or your eggs are faulty now you know, just so many myths about the process. And when I educate people about it, they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. Oh my God, my doctor had no idea. Right. They told me I'm infertile now. They told me I can never have a baby. And that's just not true. And so we're really excited to have this educational opportunity to share with folks. I'm so glad you're here sharing it. I know when I interviewed Seth, he said we were one of the first platforms he had known of to, I mean, this was years ago, we told the story of Seth and it trended in media because it's like the Wild West. I mean, navigating IVF and egg retrieval, you think you're the first, even though like it's been done a bajillion times, you always think you're the first because it's so overwhelming and confusing. But we know, and this is part of the work you guys are both doing, that healthcare providers, greater, bigger systems don't understand it. So educating about that, tell me from both of your perspectives, what have you learned as you've been not only learning personally about it, but sharing it with the community. What has happened? Yeah, I think we've gotten a largely positive reception to sharing our story. I think some people are just really interested because this is something they've 
never heard of before or didn't think was possible or they think is really cool. Of course, you're always going to have some trolls who find you through your trending education. But really, by and large, it's been a really positive experience educating folks, helping folks in the trans community learn that this is a possibility for them, that there are so many trans people that want to be parents and learning that they don't have to choose between being their authentic selves and being a parent, that that's not a choice you have to make. You can do both. Like, I'm so excited to be a trans man and to be a dad. I think for Becca and her research, I'll let her talk about and about educating other researchers to these possibilities. She's really one of the first people to take it on. Yeah, and it helped us like identify maybe where in bigger systems there's a need for education. There's certainly something super powerful and impactful about sharing on social media, sharing with your friends. And I think at the bigger level, this is about changes in medical school. This is about changing how we educate doctors and providers to provide better care to trans folks and families who are outside sort of the systems that they're in place for. So I hope that down the line, we're able to sort of use this and translate this into sort of bigger system change. Yeah, I'm so glad that mostly the feedback has been positive. Of course, the internet has the trolls. We get them too. What have you learned maybe that you didn't know as you cycled through fertility treatments that maybe even no matter how much research you do on paper, it's just different, right? So what have you learned or what has happened? I mean, I learned a lot about Ben's eggs. Like I had no idea that his eggs could, that they could be so plentiful and so healthy. I think like anyone, you know, we're subject to the context that we know things in and that wasn't the narrative I had been told. So there was a lot of unlearning and relearning in place about the fact that they were healthy and there was 17 of them. And that is amazing for anyone. And I think learned more about Ben and who he is and his resilience through this process and sort of what it takes to get through it just physically and sort of watch him go through that process was, yeah. Yeah, and I think I had been, you know, this was almost 10 years into my transition. I was pretty jaded with medical providers. I've had pretty heinous experiences with providers in the past, whether that's a PCP, a specialist, the ER, you name it. Pretty jaded across the board. And I learned that there was the possibility that this could be in some ways a pleasant and positive experience. You know, the providers that we had, the clinic that we went to, it was very clear that I was the only man there in a room full of pregnant or soon to be pregnant people who looked different than I did. And no one blinked an eye. And my provider went so above and beyond to educate her staff, whether that was at the front desk or the folks drawing my labs or when she came in herself to do, you know, ultrasounds or other check-ins about using inclusive language, about not making assumptions that we were there for Becca and not me when we walked in together. Really simple things that taught me that this, it is possible for this to be an affirming experience, that it's possible to, you know, of course, folks don't feel at their best going through fertility treatments, but that it can be overall positive and really beautiful and smooth. Yeah. And where was, what is your clinic or doctor? I mean, I'm just curious because that's always good to know. Yeah. We saw Dr. Tracy Harrison at Reproductive Partners in San Diego. She and is just exceptional. I like 
I want her to be there for the birth of our baby. <laughs> I just, yeah. she was so incredible from the language she used to the training of her staff just really went so far above and beyond and actually started doing research on the experiences of trans people in medicine, particularly in fertility care, so that she could share that with other folks and get that published and get what she was doing to be the norm, which it should be. Yes, I will say I've noticed a shift just personally going to reproductive conferences for the six years I've been at Pregnish. There's more published on trans fertility than I've ever seen on perspectives and processes and education. So that's been very positive that we've noticed. You know, I think, you know, we launched Pregnanish with an LGBTQ tab. And at that time, almost seven years ago, people said, why are you calling that out? We also put singles up there. And I said, well, I'm calling it out because they said, well, well, you're serving everybody. You don't need to parse it out. I said, no, I do, because we need to send a message that <laughs> to capture anyone for whom sex does not make baby is welcome here. <laughs> and we have to call out singles are often left out of the conversation who, you know, are asked about where's your husband? Where's your partner? Like many people are accessing these treatments. And I'm so glad that you found a great provider. Can you share, Ben, some insights on retrieving eggs? Obviously, you had to get off testosterone and shoot up with some like heavy duty female hormones. So what was that like? Yeah, coming off tea was really hard for me and it's not hard for everyone but for me I felt physically and emotionally just low really low I think that a point of education I learned from from our provider and something we share in our work is you know the same hormones that I injected to stimulate my follicle production are sort of the same or similar hormones like aromatase inhibitors that are used for quote male infertility to increase testosterone. And so I think something providers can do and that we can shift in the conversation is moving away from language like, you know, expecting mothers or female hormones or language that boxes people in, not just for trans and non-binary folks, but just to call things what they are. You know, something our provider did really well was to ask the words that I use for my body parts and not make assumptions. That serves everyone, not just trans people. Like lots of people are uncomfortable with certain words for their body. So once we started the process of, you know, I came off testosterone, my levels dropped, then we started injecting the follicle stimulating hormones. That was, that was a ride. I think I can let Becca talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As someone who doesn't like injections, that was a huge hurdle for us to get over and it was not fun to have to hurt your partner. Oh, because you administered. Yeah, I administered all the injections. I have a background in healthcare. I've done phlebotomy. Like, I'm very comfortable with those things. But it was really hard to watch him be so distressed and sort of have to make sure that we were getting them done. There were so many every day. So many of them are so time sensitive. So really taking care of keeping track of that schedule and dosaging. And he cried all the time. I, I don't know. Those hormones were doing wild things. We'd watch a commercial. He was crying. He'd watch a show. Seth on our podcast said the same thing. He said, like, suddenly commercials, I was just lost it. So that's really interesting. If I would, like, look at my dog sleeping on the couch, I'd be like, she's beautiful. <laughs> hormones are powerful, right? I mean, for real. 
It's no joke. I think when people haven't been through it, they don't understand that, you know, at all. How did you decide for Ben to retrieve eggs? And is there a possibility for you ahead, Becca, or you haven't made that decision? Yeah. So we decided to do Ben's eggs when we did because we were still in COVID and at home all the time and knew that this was going to be a really grueling process for him. And so being protected with some extra home time was sort of the perfect time to do it. And retrieving the eggs sooner than later, just in terms of our timeline, was really ideal. So we went ahead and did that when we had the opportunity to. And in terms of my eggs, our goal is going to be we have donor sperm that is in a little freezer in LA. (laughs) And we'll go ahead and do an IUI with my egg first because my eggs are still aging and his are now frozen at 27. So <laughs> we're going ahead and do that with mine. And then hopefully the second pregnancy will be the embryo transfer with Ben's egg and that same donor sperm. Oh, I see. And how did you pick your donor? This is one of my favorite questions because I think that's also the Wild West. We don't have a handbook on that. We work a lot with people undergoing that process. So for you guys, what did that look like? Yeah, it was really hard because we both had very strict criteria and they did not necessarily align. But soon after my retrieval, which there was other drama, I was in the hospital, I broke up a dog fight that happened at the same time as the retrieval. So I was at home recovering on the couch, Becca was at work and I got a ping, new donor alert. And I was like, whatever. (laughs) But I clicked on it. And he was everything I wanted. He was highly educated with at least a master's degree. He had red hair, which was important to me. He spoke multiple languages. He spoke multiple languages. He He loved nature. He was athletic, like everything we wanted. And I sent it to Becca. She was at work and she was like, hey, I think I like that guy. And I was like, our time is now. (laughs) He's right. And I was like, (laughs) what is happening? Whoops. I have my sperm right now. They were like, I don't. They don't get that. Like that to them sounds ridiculous, but I totally get that. Did you work with a company? Um, Yeah, we worked with California Cryobank. They were really wonderful. And so we ended up pulling the trigger and buying a whole bunch of sperm. I love it. Yeah, it's, listen, this is modern family building. It could not be more modern than that. Becca, what were, you said at the beginning, both of you had very different criteria. Like, what did you think you were looking for? Let me clarify. I think we had similar criteria, but we were basically, had so many criteria. (laughs) And I think, I mean, we looked at so many donor profiles and always one of us was like, nah, that doesn't feel quite right. I really wanted to see like travel and adventure and like that spontaneity. And Ben was like ginger and educated. <laughs> I was like, he's got to be smart. He's going to have right in here. Oh, and that really went your options. Yes. There's not that many ginger donors. So that really already narrowed our pool so much. But this one was the first time we both read the profile and we're like, yep, that was it. Like a very simple. We just knew that that was the right one. That's so awesome. What's something that surprised you during your fertility process to retrieve eggs that you maybe didn't know? So most trans men or non-binary people assigned to love birth think that when you have a hysterectomy, like that's it for you. And that was what I was always told, that if you want to have a chance of carrying a pregnancy yourself or retrieving your eggs, you can't have a hysterectomy. I was having some really severe bleeding, a lot of, you know, cysts and other things in my uterus. And so I decided when the living in Vermont to have a hysterectomy 
but it is possible to leave your ovaries, which most people don't know. I knew I never wanted to carry a pregnancy. I was sure about that, but I was not sure that I was willing to give up the possibility of being a parent. I didn't know that it would be possible for me to have a hysterectomy and to still keep my dream of being a dad. What I didn't know and what I learned from a really affirming OBGYN when I was living in Vermont was that I could have a hysterectomy. I could remove my cervix, my uterus, my fallopian tubes, decrease the dysphoria that I felt every month with the potential of bleeding. I could decrease my own health and cancer risks by removing parts that could be considered at a higher risk, but that I could keep my ovaries and I could keep them so that one day I had the potential to harvest eggs. And I could keep them so that you know your body needs a hormone. Everyone's body makes estrogen and everyone's body makes testosterone. So that if one day, this was also during the four years of Trump, that if one day, as we're seeing now, it is illegal to access healthcare for me, or if it, I was unable to access healthcare, then my body would still make a hormone. It needs a hormone to run. That wasn't the hormone I wanted it to be running on, but that that was kind of a safety net for me, in addition to the possibility of being a, a biological parent in the future. Wow. What are some misconceptions other ones maybe that we haven't covered about this process that you think is still largely misunderstood by healthcare providers, by insurance carriers. Did you have any insurance to do these treatments? So much back and forth with insurance. I mean, I still have, to be very transparent, a fat bill sitting in collections because we were promised in writing through mail, through email, that it would be covered at X percentage, a very high percentage. I was very lucky. And it turns out that nothing was. And so for two years now, we just haven't had the energy that it takes. And whether you're trans or not, fighting with insurance companies about fertility treatments is insufferable. And so just having the added layer of when Becca calls, they assume it's for her or when they don't believe that it's for me or because I am coded, my sex is coded as male in the system, they will automatically reject all claims. So, you know, when I had my hysterectomy, the provider's office actually very sneakily would flip-flop my sex marker in the system so that it would automatically deny the coverage. So I think that is something that just is unbelievably insufferable that folks don't understand just this added layer of the assumptions that people make on the other end of the phone, the assumptions they make about what they should or should not cover, making choices for me that we should be making in our family planning process. I also think it's important for us to recognize that we have a tremendous amount of privilege in this too. Ben's name and sex marker match in all of his legal paperwork. And that makes a huge difference when you're navigating insurance. So for folks that haven't wanted to, haven't had the opportunity to, haven't had the support to make sure that those documents align with the name and marker that they're using, it can be even harder to navigate insurance. And I think that we have a tremendous privilege as people with medical literacy to be able to navigate the system. I have a background in healthcare. Through Ben's transition, he's sort of been the educator for his providers. And that's certainly not the norm. And without that sort of self-efficacy, advocacy, medical literacy skills, I think it would have been extremely challenging. So on that note, for those listening who are overwhelmed, as anyone would be starting this process, what advice do you have? And I'll start with you, Ben. 
My advice for folks going through this process would be to take it one step at a time. When we would make a list of all the things we needed to do, all the things we needed to buy, all the providers we needed to call, the pre-authorizations that needed to be checked up on, it felt like this was so far out of reach. It felt like it would never happen for us. And it's really easy to see this process in front of you and feel almost like, what's the point? You know, like it is so easy for other people to have a baby. Why is this so hard? You know, we want this baby so bad and we're being so intentional about it. It's easy to beat yourself down and feel like it's not fair and it's not fair. And so I think we had to have, you know, like our five minute pity party and be like, this really sucks. And then we chipped away at it one step at a time. And whether you are a queer or trans person doing this on your own, doing it with a partner or multiple partners, whether you're hoping to retrieve eggs or sperm or to carry a child yourself, I would say that you absolutely need a support system with you. I could never have done this without Becca by my side through the, through the whole process. And so take it one step at a time and make sure that you have your people surrounding you. This is a really... I think sensitive time, it's a really overwhelming time and you need your people to be by your side through it. I think also with that is find the folks that can advocate for you. Not at every insurance company, but oftentimes there are case managers and folks that specifically specialize in this area. I think it was really helpful for us to take the time, talk to them, let them sort of do some of this legwork if they're able to. Um, talk to people in the community at organizations who might be able to sort of come into your corner and and help take that burden off. I think as a partner, as much as I could, I tried to relieve the burden of Ben having to explain himself 4,000 times. There are certain things Ben had to do as the patient that I couldn't do, but as often as I could, sort of taking that burden off of him and and doing it myself so that way he didn't have to. And you know what? That's good advice universally for anyone cycling through fertility treatments, but especially with that added nuance of navigating it in a way that a lot of healthcare providers don't understand. Thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you if they want to follow your story and your work? Yeah, we're both pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Benjamin.Carmichael. Becca's at Becca E. Fowler on Instagram. I have been really lucky to be published in a few books, including Trans Bodies, Trans Selves, the second edition that just came out, which is a really wonderful resource for trans folks looking to find community and read stories about what is possible in the world, but also for partners or for allies or people who want to be better allies to see the beautiful constellation of folks identifying differently than they do, kind of getting a window into the world of other people's lives and and learning about them in that way. Thank you both for giving a window into your lives. I look forward to following along as you make your family bigger. I know you have a lot of animals, but (laughs) the humans in your life. So we look forward to following along. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Pregnish Podcast, where we cover the extraordinary lengths extraordinary people go to to create their families. Until next time.